Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio focused on the 50th anniversary of 1968, a year that changed America. We chatted with people who were there and documented it, along with some folks who want to recapture the revolutionary spirit of that year. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for August 24, 2018. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Kofi Moyo, a photographer who captured the 1968 riots on film. Moyo, who is also a noted cookbook author, talked about 1968, chatted about food, and much more with John Daly. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time, at 4 p.m. You were telling us a little bit about um, the kind of scene that set up um, August of 1968 and some of the photos that you had captured and, and, uh, and how you got there. Yeah. Well, uh, not steeped necessarily in the history of what was going on with SDS, but, you know, 1968 in Chicago and the Democratic uh, National Convention was sort of a culmination uh, of a of a very hot summer. I mean, lots SDS didn't start in Chicago. You know, student from the uh, Democratic Society, uh, you know, bombings and different across the country, uh, uh, lots of stuff, and uh, the uh, leadership uh, were, uh, you know, like Jerry Rubin and so forth. You know, these guys. And then on the other, on the other end, you had other uh, types like um, I'm losing his name, and I shouldn't. Uh, own uh, the Abby Hoffman. Thank you, sir. Uh, no, no, a poet. Poet. Oh, uh, Allen Ginsberg. Thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, the movement, student uh, movement at that particular time, because the, among other things, the background uh, back against the backdrop of the, um, the Vietnam War, which is, you know, an obscenity to say the least. Um, we, we don't necessarily go, need to go there, but uh, as I read a bit, which I uh, do a lot of reading with my dad and all, uh, we've got a war that's going on now t- 20 years plus. I mean, and, uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that, that that we don't have another groundswell of, of, of resistance to this. I mean, it's an abomination what's been going on with this, this, this thing in Afghanistan and so forth. At any rate... Uh, digress a, a moment, but the uh, National Democratic Convention was uh, was was coming, and uh, the the mayor Richard J. Daly, uh, whose home was not really too far from here, uh, relatively speaking, here in Bridgeport, um, was not interested in having his his party sort of. Uh, uh, a place that was going to be defiled in any kind of way, and so there was this this major standoff that took place between the the, the uh, leadership of the of the movement and the, the thousands of students, both from Chicago and I'm sure from other places throughout the country that assembled here in Chicago uh, for the uh, National Democratic Convention, and uh, again out of curiosity. Um, I said, well, I've never been involved in anything like this, so let me let me go see. I've got cameras at this point in time. Uh, 
but let me go see what's happening. So I went down and um, a little bit during the daytime, uh, and I was by this time I was uh, I was on I was on <laughs> payroll at the University of Chicago, so I was down there early. And then uh, uh, um, after discharging my responsibilities, I went back in the evening. So I got a few shots from both times. But it was very clear at that particular time that it was going to be, it, you know, like most things, when it gets dark outside, things, you know, where they say the freaks come out at night. <laughs> things, you know, things turned up. And it got, it got very ugly very quickly. Um, uh, I did a bit because, again, without press credentials and I could see things that were going on, another dear friend of mine um, um, got got roughed up pretty good, uh, and he was uh, a part of the press corps. So, uh, you know, I got a little bit of work done, and then, and then I got out of there. So, which is what sort of, some of those images are part of, uh, part of the exhibit. Uh, they some they take on an eerie kind of uh, uh, of um, imagery and color uh, as I was changing a film and not paying a lot of t a lot of attention to what uh, you know f stops and all that kind of good stuff and and being jostled around a bit. But the outcome, I mean, I'm very very much pleased with it. I'm, I'm sort of a straight-ahead photo documentarian kind of guy. I don't get off into a lot of uh, trick kind of stuff. But under these circumstances, it just sort of happened that way. Um, and uh, I, had a, I had use of a fisheye camera. I was in the amphitheater, and... Uh, Say well, this and, and again with my press credentials, I sort of talked my way in to uh, to getting inside with the, with with eyes on, like you know, get in and out of here. And so I just took a couple of shots uh, with this fish eye that sort of took in the whole thing, you know. And I, and I wasn't that not really that much interested in the delegations and so forth. But I caught caught Mayor Daly with the Illinois um, a delegation and few other things and I got out of there. The result is uh, something a little special, I think. So you were actually photographing, were, were you aware of, of some of the protests that were happening in the parks um, because of University of Chicago or because of friends or you had mentioned you had heard, was it in the, was it in the news that you had heard that things were going on or? Oh, no. I, oh you mean about what was going on in the park? Mm -hmm. Front page news constantly. I will, there were guardsmen in uh, in Washington Park on the, on on the south end, even though most of the activity, the early activity, was taking part in Lincoln Park. In Lincoln Park, yeah. You know, uh, it was no secret. And folks were asking for permits to stay overnight in the park. All of that, yeah. The, the, you know, the I, what has happened uh, that we live with now is that people don't have access to the lakefront uh, after. 10 o'clock, 10.30, you know, the police, you know, love moving people out of the park uh, as a result of that. Uh, prior to that, people, you know, people could spend the night in the park when it's hot. So they push all that madness back into the neighborhoods now. What, you know, we're obviously in the midst of a, a celebration in 1968. What lessons do you think 
we can draw from that era? Is there something that we can take out of that to the present day? Well, unfortunately, I think so much of what we might be able to, um, if we can take pause to try to glean anything out of out of that for what is currently going on is because of what what is happening and or not happening in Washington, D.C., I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the tone that has been set, like, you know, Charlottesville, for example, because the tone of the country and uh, the job, if you will, that... Um, the police officers and, and, and military that they have to do uh, and the temperament of people who uh, legitimately perhaps and or perhaps uh, illegitimately uh, that are involved in their their notion of what resistance is. It's, it's, it's so convoluted now that uh, I, I can't really come away with anything in particular that, um, that I could share with anybody. It would make sense. Mrs. Hell spoke to David Graver, an anthropologist who explores work, specifically the crappy jobs so many of us work. Why do crappy jobs exist? Why do companies hire talent marketers and corporate lawyers? Find out with Chuck Mertz. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. More and more people are realizing that their work is meaningless and the number of BS jobs is growing every day. Here to tell us why this is a very serious social problem that desperately needs to be addressed before we all lose our sense of self, anthropologist David Graber is author of BS Jobs, A Theory. Welcome back to This Is Hell, David. Thank you very much. It's always great to have you on the show. It's great to hear your voice. And uh, don't forget that we have to keep saying BS because we are regulated by... our radio station. (laughs) Somewhat arbitrary rules, yes. Exactly. Um, Just suffice it to say that the title is not actually BS, but you'll have to guess what it actually is. 
Yes, and uh, we're having technical issues with our censoring device. So, <laughs> so let's see which one I of us. Be very, very careful. <laughs> uh, I do too. So, you write how the polling agency YouGov took it upon itself to test the hypothesis that people believe that they have BS jobs, meaningless work. Conducted a poll of Britons using language taken directly from your original essay. For example, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? Astonishingly, more than a third, thirty-seven percent, said they believed that it did not. Whereas fifty percent said it. It did, and 13% were uncertain. A later poll in Holland came up with very similar uh, results. So o- yeah, it was even worse. So yeah. only half of respondents believe their work made a meaningful contribution to the world, because it's 37% said they didn't, 13 said they weren't sure. To you, is meaningless work what's wrong with capitalism in general, or is it what's wrong with the way we are employing capitalism today? Is this a function of capitalism or a function of what we have done to capitalism? I'm not even sure you can call it capitalism anymore. I mean, you know, the, one of the few things you could definitely say was a positive element of capitalism is that it tended to actually make stuff and produce a consumer plethora, you know, and and get it to people who actually could afford to to buy it. You know, that was supposed to be its strong point. Um, it, the plague of bull- <laughs> sorry, God, I did it. Uh, the plague of BS jobs. <laughs> Uh, lake of, of of these jobs that are pointless jobs, yes, uh, is that they are they are um, is a relatively recent thing. I mean, it's more of the sort of thing you associate with feudalism, where you know you pay retainers to sit around making you look good, than it is with capitalism. In fact, it was exactly the sort of thing that capitalism was supposed to avoid. You know, back when there was a competitor to capitalism, back when you had state socialism, they were the guys who made up the meaningless employment. You know, if you go buy a you know, something, uh, buy a magazine in a store in the Soviet Union. You know, there's one guy to take the magazine and another guy to, like, give you a coupon for it, another guy <clears throat> to redeem the coupon. You know, they're just constantly making up unnecessary jobs because they had a full employment policy. And you couldn't get fired once you did get hired. So, so needless to say, you end up in a situation where they used to say, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So the jobs are largely meaningless. But those were sort of meaningless working class jobs. Now suddenly capitalism, as soon as the Soviet Union collapses, starts creating these sort of meaningless white-collar executive jobs. I mean, there's also meaningless blue-collar jobs, but most of them are are pretty nice office jobs. Often you're a manager, middle manager, you're an executive even. You get paid pretty well, but you're not actually doing anything. It's really strange that capitalism produced this. Yeah, it is. And you have all these interviews with people who understand that they have meaningless jobs, who have uh, meaningless work, BS jobs. I've often had conversations with people who tell me, you won't believe how much I get paid for how little work I do. But at Mm -hmm. other times, Mm -hmm. those same people will tell me how horrible work has been for them, even working at times six and seven days a week. While I realize this is anecdotal, limited by my own experiences, and therefore Mm -hmm. it can be misleading. When you talk to people who had BS jobs, were they aware they were BS? And uh, like those I talked to, alternatively uh, working their asses off at their BS jobs, how much do you think the BS nature of their job is masked by how, how hard the work can actually be. Well, this is an interesting thing. Because, I mean, there's two ways to have a BS job. There's some jobs where you just literally don't do anything. Um, or, you know, you're a receptionist at a place that doesn't really need a receptionist, and maybe you get one or two calls a day, and otherwise you have to sit there and sort of look like you're shuffling papers or doing something. Or, you know, you're running a database that no one ever accesses, and every now and then, once a week, someone will call. You know, there are jobs like that. Um, and 
then there's jobs where you're do, you might be working very hard, but the entire enterprise is pointless. And a lot of people felt that way. I should emphasize it. The, the key element here is I'm not going to tell anybody who thinks their job is useful or important that they're wrong. You know, that would be obnoxious. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm saying, you know, if you think your job is meaningless, well, I'm not going to argue with you either. I mean, who would know better? Uh, and a lot of people seem to feel that their entire enterprise shouldn't exist. You argue that a mafia hitman is not a BS job and neither is a hairdresser. Yeah. But one has a horribly negative impact on society, and the other is a mafia hitman. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hitmen have a negative <laughs> impact on society, and hairdressing seems to be a frivolous pursuit. So why doesn't violence or frivolity of work make the work meaningless or the job BS? Mm, okay. Um, first of all, it really depends, again, on the assessment of the person in it. Um, what I found was that service workers in the classic sense of the term, people who cut hair, people who serve coffee, that sort of thing. Those people generally do not think that they're in BS jobs. Um, they might hate their jobs, often they do, but they don't see it as useless or pointless. But they real, you, know, you don't get people saying, you know, I market selfie sticks, selfie sticks are stupid, it's a, job. You know, it's a stupid job. I mean, people kind of accept, all right, if there's a demand for this, who am I to say what people should like? So but on the other hand, um, there's whole enterprises where, you know, clearly people feel if, the, if these didn't exist, the world would be a better place. I think most corporate lawyers secretly feel that way. You know, if there were no corporate lawyers, that would be great. So there's that distinction. Um, the other thing, the mafia hitman is in a God, I keep doing that. Um, the, the, the mafia hitman is in a BS job because, because he isn't pretending to be anything other than what he is. So there's no BS element, right? Um, he's, you know, he, he doesn't claim that he's beneficial to society, or maybe he does. Nobody really takes it seriously. Um, and, you know, he might have a job where the mafia boss hires him as a security guy in a casino, with, you know, as cover. Well, that might be a BS job because he isn't really doing it. He's pretending to be something else. But, you know, if he's just going around saying, I'm hired muscle, watch out. Well, you know, he's not socially beneficial, but there's no there's no BS element because he's not pretending to be anything other than what he is. You also define the list of BS jobs falling into five categories. And one of the categories is goons. Goons are people whose jobs have an aggressive element, but crucially, yeah. who exist only because other people employ them. And you use National Armed Forces as an example. How are yeah. the troops a BS job, but mafia hitmen are not? Well, the troops aren't necessarily. I was just giving them as an example, um, for example, of people who don't only exist because other people do. They don't feel they're in a BS job. Again, I'm not going to argue with them, but you know, some might, but I think most don't. And also you have to bear in mind armies do a lot of things other than simply protect against other armies, and, and people in armies are aware of that. But So I wasn't actually saying that. I, what I was trying to do is in that section where I categorize people, is take the 250-odd testimonies I had received, because that's what I did. I, I went off and solicited um, and said, all right, have you ever had a really pointless job? I did this on Twitter, so obviously there's a slight bias, right? Um, so it's a, the 68,000 monthly people who follow me on Twitter are probably skewed in all sorts of different ways. But nonetheless, you have to get a sample somehow. And so I said, well, if you ever had a pointless job, 
tell me all about it. You know, give, give me all the details. What was it like? Did people know? Did your boss know? Yeah. And and I got a whole bunch of testimonies. And what I was doing in that section was sorting through the various types and how people themselves explained how that job came about and why they felt it was BS. So a lot of people wrote in and said things like, I'm a telemarketer. This is complete nonsense. There shouldn't be telemarketers. I'm just annoying people or trying to rip them off. I hate it. It's terrible. So, you know, if you're providing, if you're cutting people's hair or you're you're providing coffee, well, you know, whether or not you think it's good coffee or, or whether you think they have idiotic hairstyle, um, it doesn't matter because you, if you feel you're providing something. But someone like a telemarketer didn't. They, they really felt bad. They were being forced to scam people who they didn't really want to scam. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody I talked to as a telemarketer who didn't feel their job shouldn't exist. So why do telemarketers exist? I mean, largely just because it's profitable for people to they're a scam. But insofar as there's anything else, you know, and I talked to people in businesses, I said, well, you, you employ telemarketers as other people have them. You don't need them unless someone else has them. Labor Express spoke with Andy Thayer, a longtime anti-war activist, staging a contemporary protest that harkens back to 1968. Thayer argues that 1968 was a year in which Americans rejected war, and today we can do so again. Labor Express with Jerry Mead Lucero airs every Sunday at 8 p.m. On today's program, I have in studio uh, a longtime anti-war activist, LGBTQ activist, and all-around revolutionary, Andy Thayer. Uh, and we're going to be talking about an upcoming event here in Chicago uh, scheduled for August 25th uh, called Unite Against War and Police Violence 1968 and two th- uh, 2018. Um, 68 is such a fascinating example because not only of the events here in Chicago, but 68 is one of those great revolutionary years in human history, right? You go think of 18. 18- 48, you think of, you know, 1917, 1919, and, and uh, 1968 was one of those years, right? Biggest general strike in history up to that time in France. Right, People right. in this country don't know. It, it was rocking the entire world. Um, uh, troops uh, crushing the Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was right around the world that this was happening, and it was a, a time when it seemed everything was possible. And right. it, it was, I think what is unique about it is I refer to them as independence periods. Mm. These brief periods of time when people are not only engaged on a mass scale in social issues, but also they are so profoundly disaffected from the major parties that they made huge changes that we don't even fully appreciate to this day and are being eroded today. And uh, there's these few periods in U.S. history where you see these massive expansions of people's rights and the things that we take for granted today that are being eroded today. Um, Other previous periods were, uh, for example, 1934 to 1936, roughly, when you had three general strikes in this country, uh, in uh, Minneapolis, in uh, Toledo, and in San Francisco, and then the great sit-down strikes in in all the major industries beginning around 36. And then you also had uh, the great civil rights movement, uh, where this same disaffection from both major parties at the same time of massive social engagement meant that uh, black people made the kind of gains that had been promised them post-Civil War but had never come through. Now, obviously, a lot of it's been clawed back. Our our schools are just as segregated as they were in 1954, for example. Uh, But 
I think we need to look at what made these particular periods in 68 into the early 70s is one of those. And our goal with this event on August 25th is to really highlight uh, if you want the massive change that it, it appears at all the polls and certainly people's social engagement justifies, um, then we have to look at how people in earlier periods did it. And that's the value of the 68 convention to today's world because at 68, you had Richard J. Daly's police cracking people's heads in the street. You had him ignoring the will of 80% of primary voters in the Democratic parties who'd chosen candidates who said they were anti-war and chose a man who hadn't won a single primary, Hubert Humphrey, to ram through the continuing violence in Vietnam. And people gave up on both major parties. People that on the left that, that cared about the war and social programs and so forth, they looked at Tricky Dick Nixon and they said, well, this guy is is a right-winger from way back. He's, uh, as we certainly know by now by, from the White House tapes, he was a, a, a brutal racist, anti-Semite, homophobe, sexist. You go right down the list. And so people thought, we don't have a party if we, and yet we're, tremendously socially engaged in a whole host of issues. How do we make the change? And the way they did it is they did it themselves. And that is the lesson of 68, is, is that when you have massive social engagement and people give up on both major parties and start making the change themselves, that's when you get things like, uh, I mean, the food stamp program went from virtually nothing to quintupling within a couple of years. Uh, that was thanks to the Black Panthers uh, mm-hmm. uh, in their free breakfast programs and so forth. You had uh, a Nixon packed all-male Supreme Court, which just a few late years later gave us the Roe v. Wade decision, legalizing abortion nationwide. Right. Uh, again, one of these gains that has been tremendously cut back subsequently. Uh, the LGBT movement. It was the spirit of independence. And there were a series of riots, not just Stonewall, but a series of riots. But people began organizing and not taking the hat-in-hand approach that previous LGBT or, uh, activists in the main had taken. And they burst out and, and were saying gay is good. And they were not kowtowing to uh, the politicians, the so-called experts. They were demanding equality. And that rebirthed the LGBT movement on a ba- mass basis for the first time since mm-hmm. the rise of, of Nazism and the Great Depression uh, and generation before that. So that's just a few of the gains. I mean, the environmental regulations. I mean, right, right. You, you've got the clean air, clean uh, water, the uh, Endangered Species Act. All those were signed into law by Richard right, Milhouse right. Nixon, a, a right winger. This is a guy who was such a vile racist, and yet he propounded and put into law the most expansive affirmative action program seen by any president before or since. And not because he wanted any of these things, because no. he was forced to, because the movement wasn't going to be the a useful idiot of whether the Democrats or the Republicans. There was particular historical circumstances that brought about that independence period. It only lasted a few years, um, but it brought the kind of gains that we are still enjoying today. And as pissed off as people are with Donald Trump and you know his sexual assaulting, racist, you go right down the list, um, if you really want a, a break from that, you're not going to get it from the Democrats. And that was the lesson of 68. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You, you point out the fact that, uh, and we're unfortunately we're going to be caught up to break a little bit here, so we're going to have to continue most of this in after the break. But um, you point out the fact that um, those periods, one of the things that made them so dynamic and so interesting, is because of the disaffection that people are having with the political establishment on on either end of the you know political spectrum and so on, and and uh, this uh, search for something different, something independent. You know. The, the odd thing about this era that we're in right now, the Trump era, whether you look at the emerging progressive movement and left wing in this country, which is is definitely in a period of reorganization, I'd say, and, 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 uh, and growth, or even on the right in a very negative way, right? But there's there's definitely uh, a disaffection in the population as a whole with the, with the establishment. I mean, that what, what's been fascinating for me to listen to the, you know, this so-called alt-right, this, the, the new fascist, right, is how much they have actually latched on to the language of the left when it comes to critiquing the economy, critiquing, uh, you know, neoliberalism and critiquing uh, trade agreements and all those kind of things. There is definitely a deep level of dissatisfaction across the population and the, the big question now is, you know, what what do we do coming out of that to organize that into a direction that actually brings us forward, not backward? Yeah. And, and if the left hitches its star to the neoliberals, they're going right. to get a repeat of what we saw in 2016. I mean, they haven't learned anything. Uh, and I mean... I think the left does itself a huge disservice when it excuses the mass deportations of uh, Barack Obama, uh, the biggest deporter in chief in U.S. history, and and yet suddenly gets upset about uh, Donald Trump. You got to call them both out by name. Got to pull them. And and, and if you really want to stop these these horrendous attacks on working class people uh, of of whatever description, then you need to have an independent movement. That is the lesson of '68 that people were making the change themselves. And it was very difficult. It was, it was, uh, but very courageous. And it can be done. That's what that's what the history shows us. And so, our uh, goal is 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 to not just have a nostalgia trip. This is not just about you know all we are saying is give peace a chance. It's like how did people in the United States and worldwide put an end to the first U.S. war in history, uh, short of the exhaustion of one or both sides. And that was the lesson of the Vietnam War, which had already killed three million Southeast Asians. But people put an end to that war, and more than that, for a good 15, 20 years after that, something known as the Vietnam Syndrome saved several million more. Gerald Ford, who succeeded Richard Nixon attempted to send U.S. troops to Angola to support the white minority uh, South African invasion from the South there, and he was prevented from doing it because of the the Vietnam syndrome. It wasn't until Ronald Reagan, with these little pinprick actions, such as the uh, starting with the invasion of Grenada, um, they were only able to begin clawing back this idea that the United States had the right to invade other countries. <laughs> This week on the Trump Diaries, the White House counsel flips on Trump, Trump revokes Brennan's clearance, newspapers strike back, and Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort are guilty as Trump's legal peril grows sharply. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 574, August 16th. Trump revoked former CIA director John Brennan's security clearance, claiming that Brennan had displayed, quote, erratic conduct and behavior. Trump then sent out Sarah Huckabee Sanders to read a statement saying that Brennan had abused his access to the United States' secrets to, quote, make a series of unfounded and outrageous allegations. 
Brennan has been one of Trump's most prominent critics. Trump then later admitted it was because Brennan had been part of what Trump called the, quote, sham Russia investigation. Brennan was on bow responding to Trump's claims of no collusion are, in a word, hogwash. Trump clearly has become more desperate to protect themselves and those close to him, which is why he made a politically motivated decision to revoke by security clearance in an attempt to scare into silence others who might dare challenge him. The FBI is investigating several cyber attacks over the past year targeted the Democratic opponent of Representative Dana Rohrbacher. Rohrbacher has voted against Russian sanctions and was warned by the FBI that Moscow was trying to recruit him as an asset. He is considered the most pro-Russia member of Congress. 300 American newspapers published a coordinated series of editorials assailing Trump's attacks on the First Amendment and press freedom, saying, quote, this dirty war on the free press must end. Trump responded on Twitter with a claim that the Boston Globe was in collusion with other newspapers for leading the editorial effort. Trump also added, prove it, in one of the messages, though it was not clear what he meant. Trump added, quote, the fake news media is the opposition party. The Treasury Department is delayed turning over financial records related to the Russia probe, leading to questions over whether or not the Treasury is intentionally impeding that investigation. The department also retweeted and then deleted a Trump tweet in violation of federal campaign law. The department's official Twitter account also shared a tweet from Trump touting an upcoming, quote, red wave. Day 575, August 17th. Robert Mueller has asked for jail time for a former cooperating witness, saying he repeatedly lied about his contacts with Russian operatives and caused damage to the government's inquiry. Robert Mueller said that George Papadopoulos from Chicago misled investigators about the timing, extent, and nature of those meetings. During one of the meetings with Russian contacts, Papadopoulos was told that Russia had damaging information about Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. Rudy Giuliani said Trump's legal team is prepared to fight a subpoena all the way to the Supreme Court. We would move to quash the subpoena, citing Article 2 of the Constitution and a 2000 memo from the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel following Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. In a first, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has apologized. Sanders had claimed that Trump had created three times as many jobs for black people as Obama did during his tenure. That statement was, in fact, false. Black employment between January 2009 and 2017 increased by 3 million jobs. Since then, black employment has increased by only about 700,000 jobs. Trump claimed the steel tariffs will save the U.S. steel industry because the United States was built on tariffs, and tariffs are now leading us to new great trade deals. He added, steel will be a little more expensive in the short term, but competition will be internal like it used to be in the old days when we actually had steel, and U.S. steel was our greatest company. A federal appeals court ordered the Trump administration to immediately implement the chemical disaster rule. The EPA had delayed that Obama-era chemical safety rule for 20 months. Omarosa released a tape that confirmed campaign official Laura Trump offered her a $15,000 a month job after she was fired. The disclosure stunned observers who had not previously realized how involved Eric Trump's wife was in the administration. Day 576, August 18th. Trump canceled his military parade and claimed, quote, the local politicians who run Washington, D.C. poorly inflated the cost. When asked to give us a price for holding a great celebratory military parade, they wanted a number so ridiculously high I canceled it. Never let someone hold you up. In fact, the cost had ballooned from an estimated $12 million to $92 million with security things. Trump plans to propose a major overhaul of climate change regulations that would allow individual states to decide how or even whether to curb carbon dioxide emissions from coal plants. That plan would also relax pollution rules for power plants that need upgrades. The plan would likely cause emissions to rise and pollute neighboring states as well. 
Trump threatened to quickly revoke the security clearance of Bruce Orr, a little-known Justice Department official. Trump told reporters that Orr was a disgrace, quote, and I suspect they'll be taking it away very quickly. He alleged incorrectly that Orr played a part in starting the investigation into Russian election interference. Conspiracy theorists allege that Orr's wife was involved in the special counsel's investigation. There is no truth to this theory. Orr is, in fact, a career law enforcement official who has worked on anti-drug and anti-gang initiatives at the Justice Department. Observers suspect the actual motive is to get Rod Rosenstein to quit. Trump said that conservative voices were being unfairly censored on social media and that he should intervene. Social media is totally discriminating against Republican conservative voices, Satan said on Twitter, saying that censorship is a very dangerous thing. Speaking loudly and clearly for the Trump administration, we won't let that happen. A number of tech companies have recently booted the embattled far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones off of their platforms. Trump is apparently close to backing Eric Prince's plan to privatize the war in Afghanistan with Blackwater security contractors. Prince's sister is Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Day 577, August 19th. A bombshell reports that the Trump's White House counsel, Don McGahn, has become a cooperating witness in the Russia inquiry. McGahn, fearing he could be made a scapegoat by Trump, sat for 30 hours with the special counsel, giving them a treasure trove of information. McGahn described in detail how Trump tried to ensure control of the investigation, information that is potentially damaging to Trump. McGahn said that he never saw Trump go beyond his legal authorities. Trump apparently allowed the conversations, wrongly believing that McGahn would solely defend his interests to investigators. McGahn, however, sees his role as the protector of the presidency, not of Trump. Trump's current legal team now sees the interviews as gravely damaging. Trump attacked the New York Times following the release of that report. Trump confirmed he allowed McGahn and other officials to cooperate fully, saying he had nothing to hide. Quote, the failing New York Times wrote a fake piece today implying that because White House counsel Don McGahn was giving hours of testimony to the special counsel, he must be a John Dean-type rat. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani claimed truth isn't the truth. Giuliani claimed that Trump shouldn't testify in the Mueller probe because he would, quote, be trapped into perjury. The TV host Chuck Todd countered that truth is truth, which Giuliani denied. Todd retorted, alternative facts are not facts, they're falsehoods. The State Department will not spend some $230 million earmarked for Syrian stabilization. The White House Budget Office is also attempting to cancel about $3 billion in foreign aid using an obscure budget rule. Omarosa claimed that Betsy DeVos said the black students who booed her 2017 commencement speech at Howard lacked, quote, the capacity to understand what she's trying to accomplish, meaning all those black students were too stupid to understand her agenda. Trump calls DeVos ditzy DeVos and calls her woefully inadequate and not equipped for her job. Trump asked the SEC to consider scaling back how often public companies must report earnings to investors from a quarterly basis to twice a year. Day 578, August 20th. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen's attorney, has been in conversations with John Dean. Dean was Nixon's White House counsel and was indicted on conspiracy charges. John Dean said later in the meeting, quote, I think Trump has a real problem here and I'm not sure how he's going to handle it. In the wake of the Times report on Don McGahn, Trump's lawyers realized they had no idea what he had told the special counsel as a cooperating witness. Trump's lawyers also think Trump got bad advice to cooperate fully and to waive executive privilege. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh outlined 10 explicit questions in a 1998 memo that he wanted Ken Starr to ask Bill Clinton about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. That memo is sure to come up in Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. The Justice Department is now investigating whether longtime Republican fundraiser Elliot Brody tried to sell his influence with the Trump administration. Brody resigned from the RNC after it was reported he paid a former Playboy model $1.6 million in exchange for her silence about an affair. 
in his spot, Brody actually took the fall for the fair hand by Trump. Cohen arranged that setting. Day 579, August 21st. The former CIA director John Brennan said he is considering legal action against Trump after his security clearance was revoked. Trump tweeted in response he'd welcome a lawsuit from Brennan. 175 former State Department and Pentagon officials also signed a statement of opposition to Trump's decision. Legal experts believe that Trump's targets are people who would use their clearances to access information in testimony against him in the Mueller probe. That is witness tampering, and it may open up another avenue of legal peril. Russian hackers are now targeting conservative think tanks and senators. A group affiliated with the Russian government created phony versions of six websites, the apparent goal of hacking into the computers of people. Microsoft discovered and disabled those sites. U.S. officials have repeatedly warned the November vote is a major focus for interference from Russia. Trump made public the details of new pollution rules governing coal-burning power plants. The plan acknowledged it would both increase carbon emissions and lead up to 1,400 premature deaths annually. That proposal, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, is a replacement for the Clean Power Plan. Trump made a racially charged remark about a Hispanic American Border Patrol agent he was supposed to be honoring. Trump blurted out, quote, speaks perfect English, as he encouraged Adrian Andalusia, a dog handler from Texas, to come to the stage. Andalusia recently arrested a smuggler in Laredo who had tried to bring in 78 people in the United States illegally in a truck trailer. Day 580, August 22nd. Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen surrendered to the FBI and pled guilty to breaking campaign finance laws. In addition, he directly implicated Trump in a federal crime by saying he had made payments to two women, quote, in coordination with, at the direction of a candidate for federal office with the principal purpose of influencing the election. The statements were bombshells and led to scrambling by Trump, who tried to paint Cohen as a liar. Cohen faces 45 years in jail on those counts. Cohen's lawyer said he considers Trump to be both corrupt and a dangerous person in the Oval Office. Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, added that Cohen is not only not seeking a pardon, but would not accept one. Davis added, the President of the United States directed Cohen to commit a crime, meaning the President committed the crime and covered it up. Cohen is also seeking to cooperate with Mueller, with Davis saying his extensive knowledge of, quote, a Russian conspiracy to corrupt American democracy and a failure to report that knowledge to the FBI. In addition, Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, was convicted on eight charges of financial fraud at his trial. Manafort hid millions of dollars in foreign accounts to evade taxes and lied to banks repeatedly to obtain millions of dollars in loans. It was a significant victory for Robert Mueller in his investigation into Trump. Manafort now faces life in prison. Trump called the verdict a very sad one in a witch hunt, but declined to say if he would pardon Manafort. 51% of Republicans say the news media is the enemy of the people and not an important part of democracy. 65% of Americans overall say the news media is an important part of democracy. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting lefts, book to Slim Coleman, Marilyn Katz, and Mary Scott Boria of the SDS and Black Panther Party in celebration of 1968. Coleman talked about being on the ground that fateful year in Chicago, and Katz and Scott Boria spoke about doing most of the work in the background. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Slim Coleman. Hmm. Uh, Slim Coleman. Uh, Slim, I, I believe uh, when I got to Chicago in 68, when I was elected to be the National Secretary of SDS, and I first walked into the SDS office over on Madison Street, I think you were the first person I met, maybe you and Kathy Archibald. There you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, as, I, as I remember, we, we recruited you to run from L.A. We said, this guy looks like he got some fire. We need somebody yeah. here. Can Slim, talk, do you remember who I ran against? Straight. 
Uh, absolutely not, man. Well, uh, I'll tell you, it was a garbage can. A garbage can. Yeah, the anarchists uh, put up a garbage can. They didn't yeah. believe in having Ooh, ben these. Ben Maria and those guys? <laughs> well, I think it was maybe Mark Rudd. <laughs> Mark Rudd. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, anyway, and, it was and a, to tell you the truth, it was a stirring I, victory. I think, the, I think the garbage can might have even, uh, I think you might have been came, counting the votes. Came close, yeah, yeah, right. Are, yeah. Uh, yeah, well. Yeah, the garbage can came close. So, what, how did you get there? Uh, I know you and I think I know Kathy was working uh, maybe with SNCC in Philly or something like that, running a, some kind of a campaign, yeah. defense campaign. How did you get to uh, Chicago in '68? Well, um, Jim Foreman, James Foreman from SNCC, had asked Kathy and I to come up to, uh, you know, to meet with the students at SDS, and uh, they had decided that. Uh, they really didn't need the black liberation struggle anymore. That they were, uh, they had a new. It was the new working class <laughs> was going to take control of the revolution, and uh, so Foreman said, "Why don't you guys go up there and see if you can get them straight?" Straighten us out, huh? <laughs> Put the mic a little closer to you. Sir. Okay. Uh, so you came up, uh, and what were you? Uh, where, where did you come from? Uh, well, I had been previously in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, yeah, we had a little. Uh, little organization on the near west side uh, in Cleveland and some coalitions and uh, the uh, and Ivanhoe Donaldson came to Cleveland and kind of recruited me back SNCC, into... SNCC organizer, Ivanhoe yeah, Donaldson. Yeah, yeah right, recruited, late, recruited uh, me yeah. back into uh, SNCC and, and said, come on up to Chicago for the National Convention on New Politics, ah. which a lot of us forget. And uh, Kathy Archibald had been, had infiltrated the the Kennedy's office in in uh, in Boston, uh, and found out that the plan was to uh, run Spock for president at the new con national convention on new politics, and he would fade away to McCarthy, and McCarthy would fade away to Bobby Kennedy. You know, it was well organized until Foreman walked into the uh, into the convention with two guys about eight foot tall with spears. <laughs> for real? Yeah, for real. And took over the platform and said, well, we have several points that we want to go. Number one is uh, we want to uh, uh, pass a resolution that says Zionism is racism, in which case uh, Marty Peretz, who had funded the whole thing, walked out of the convention. <laughs> <laughs> and then two, that the Black Caucus gets 51% of the vote. Yeah. So after that, uh, so we did some work with them, and then I went with I had a little problem in Cleveland, so I went with Kathy to uh, Boston, and then Foreman sent us to Chicago. Uh, and then uh, shortly after I got here, really, uh, SNCC merged with the Black Panther Party, uh, and I started working with uh, Fred. Uh, with Fred Hampton yeah. and the Panther Party here in right, Chicago. Right. All right, we, we want to get into that. Slim, uh, we, we could actually spend all two hours talking about uh, your, your background Whatever. and history, yeah. you know, yeah. going yeah. from a— uh, an activist in the student movement and SDS to uh, working with the Panther Party and then later as an advisor to uh, Harold Washington. And then, I mean, you're really someone who, who uh, goes through that, uh, makes that connection right. right up to today with your activity in the uh, immigrant rights uh, movement. Right. And we'll get back to you. Uh, we'll get back to you in a couple Good. of minutes. I want to introduce... Glad to be here. I want to introduce uh, Mary... Uh, Mary Scott Maria, uh, speaking of the Panther Party, Mary, when you were, a, I guess you were a teenager then, um, you know, <laughs> looking at you now, I, you must have been very young back then <laughs> in 1968. Uh, yeah. What, what uh, brought you to the Panther Party in Chicago? 
Well, I was um, actually 17 at the time, and uh, a See, student, I got that right, right. Got that right, yeah, 17, uh, fresh. And I was a student at Crane Junior College. I had been, uh, uh, had come to Chicago from Battle Creek, Michigan. My mother actually came to Chicago in the 50s. She was brought to Chicago by the family of Emmett Till. Oh. And um, we didn't know that, though, for many, many years, that that's how she got to Chicago. We came to Chicago as teenagers, and um, I was a pregnant teen and ended up at uh, Crane Junior College on the west side of Chicago. And that is where the hub of black student activism was happening right. in Chicago. Right. Um, and uh, the Black Panthers were there regularly. I don't. I'm not sure uh, if that's where, that's not obviously not where their headquarters, their headquarters were around the corner on Madison. Um, but Fred Hampton was there regularly. Bobby Rush was there. Bobby might have actually been a student. Um, and I was mesmerized. I had been um, brought up in the civil rights movement um, in Michigan and uh, came to Chicago after hearing um, Martin Luther King speak at Soldier Field. And my sister and I, we lived with my dad at the time. My sister and I said, we got to go to Chicago because there ain't nothing happening in Battle Creek. <laughs> and uh, we knew that we were getting money for our birthday. And uh, we packed up. They were up making cheerio, uh, 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 yeah, cornflakes. Cornflakes, <laughs> right. Uh, we uh, we uh, bought a Greyhound bus ticket and uh, put as much of our clothes in boxes as we could. We left my father a note and said, we're going to Chicago and we're not coming back. Um, and we ended up on the west side of Chicago. And that was in 1965. And uh, there was a lot happening in Chicago. But it was in 1968 um, that I got um, uh, politicized in the Chicago way um, at Crane Junior College. So my political birth was there and my involvement with the Black Panther Party What was it there. about the Panther Party that attracted you uh, as a young Young person. Uh oh, they were powerful. They had a powerful image, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'll tell I'll tell a funny story. Uh, as a as a very light skinned black woman, had this. I spent a lot of my time trying to prove to black people that I was black, <laughs> um, and uh, and so I I had an afro that was probably much bigger than Angela Davis <laughs> as afro, um, and um, I was at a rally at uh, the. Black Panthers had a rally at the church on Washington and uh, uh, Ashland. And I went to the rally, uh, as many students did, and, you know, I was mesmerized by the, you know, the, the salute and uh, the Black Panthers in their black berets and their black combat boots and their black leather jackets. I was mesmerized, and, uh, and, that, and they said, you know, we want any of you who want to join the party, show up. And if you're too light-skinned, you come with your birth. If you're, if you're, if you're too light-skinned, come with your birth certificate. And I showed up at the Black Panther office on Madison, and I had my birth certificate in my pocket. And when I showed it to the person at the desk, he thought I was a little nuts. Um, but that was my um, introduction to the Panthers. I, I just felt like they're, um, I mean, we were young students, and we were in a place where there was a lot of radical conversation happening. What was it like for a woman, though? Uh, uh, y the images you see today of the Black Panther Party, 
except for a few examples, you yeah. don't really see women. Well, there were there yeah. were women in leadership yeah. in the party. And um, I was a foot soldier. I want to make that really clear. I was a foot soldier. Um, and I've been a foot soldier in lots of movements. Uh, I don't, I don't profess myself to be a leader. I profess it's to, not be, a movement uh, foot to, to yeah. be a strong uh, uh, foot soldier. Um, it was a mixed bag. Um, and I think for some of us, we some of us experienced uh, sexism in ways that are um, memorable. Um, and, however, I do think that my political education um, as, a, as a, a woman who had the opportunity to have a voice uh, was much more profound than the sexism that I experienced. Um, and, you know, there were very few women who were at the leadership of the, uh, the Hamptons and the Rushes in that group, but I still have very strong relationships with with many of the the men that I met throughout the years. Uh, Shay is one of those persons. You're talking about Billy Shay Brooks, who's going to be Shea here Brooks, around yeah. noon. Hell of a guy. So I, okay. I think that we, you know, uh, we were relegated to um, selling newspapers. Everybody sold newspapers. I had a one-year-old, and I used to put her in the buggy, and we'd ride up and down Madison Street selling newspapers. And let me tell you something. People bought those newspapers from a young woman with a baby in a buggy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We sold newspapers. We worked at the breakfast program. I mean, we did the the work uh, of the organization. We might not have been the spokespersons, but we did the work. Also in the studio this week were FOCO, a new local pop supergroup. They played their new single, Set the Record Straight, live in Studio B.
Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Thank you.